Here is one of the great tensions, one of the great paradoxes of life, our life, your life, my life. On the one hand, I really think we are but flotsam and jetsam in the universe. You know, just thinking about how little our eyes, our brain takes in of the reality that surrounds us. I, I actually tried to look this up. I couldn't find an exact number, but I've heard it's less than 1% because to take in more than that would be just overwhelming. And even what we do take in, what we are present to, you know, we can control almost none of it and we can influence only an iota of it. And at the same time, we know there's a difference between when we're actively engaged in our own lives, when we're taking responsibility for our freedom, as my mentor Peter Block would put it, and also when we're opting out or we're playing the victim role or we're just not making the choices, not having the courage to make the choices perhaps that are present to us, that are presented to us. But I like the paradox. I find it liberating in a strange way. You know, it is both I can control nothing and I'm an active participant in my own life. And the question to sit with is, so how do we, how do I, how do you navigate that tension? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Steve Morrow is a friend of mine. He's an OD learning and development geek, a bit like me. He's got a far better beard than I do. He's a fellow Australian. And uh, his role at Salesforce is very much focused on coaching and effective teams and effective leadership. But Steve didn't start off in the organizational development and human development world. In fact, he began in sales and marketing, but soon enough started looking inside instead of outside at potential clients and customers. I don't know, I just got really interested in the uh, people side of performance and it seems so simple, you know, you should be able to get a group of talented people, put them together and it works. But that wasn't my experience in the early parts of my kind of career and with the sales teams I ran. This, of course, is not uncommon. When you step into a management role, you suddenly realize it's way trickier managing people than you thought. I mean, in short, people, brilliant and messy, glorious and crazy making. Now, some people back away from that. Some people figure out how to do the minimum or at least the basics of what's required. But some people really lean into it. And that's Steve. He really wanted to understand how to best manage people. And I was curious to know what motivated him. I think seeing that gap between what I thought people were capable of and what they were achieving just fascinated me. And I think finding really practical ways to help people be successful at what they want um, was a, a really nice thing to give, but it was also a really nice thing to get. I really enjoyed it. And so I think that probably cemented my transition into this being the work <laughs> rather than having leadership as a component of my work. So as he watched this unfold, as he watched the river run, Steve began seeing the links between being a better leader, leading a better business and living a better life. And there were people there that role modeled this for him as well. The HR director there, Greg Burke, who, um, who was great, wise old soul. It was a very young company. He was a bit like our organizational Yoda. You know, he sort of brought the wisdom. But, but he, you know, he had just had this knack of seeing into people. And I think he saw into me and really gave me a lot of the confidence, but also the clarity around 
where to contribute, how to contribute, how to grow. That's, a, that's an interesting choice of words, an interesting phrase, being seen into. I wanted to know more about what that means. I sometimes joke when I grow up, I'll work out what I'm really going to do with my life. <laughs> I've <laughs> never been one of those people who sort of knew exactly what my career looked like and where it went. But uh, looking back, I can see the red threads. I know how it all joined together. Mm. Um, but, I, when, you know, when I was talking about confidence he gave me as well as clarity, I think he was able to developmentally show me some of the career experiences and the areas of contribution within organisations right. that really played to my strengths. Um, and he, you know, like great leaders do, he created opportunities for me to both contribute and be stretched. Um, yeah. And the more of those I did, the more opened up. So I think, um, you know, there's definitely areas where I saw him putting me into things and I was like, don't you want someone who knows how to do that? Like, <laughs> there's so many good people, why choose me? Um, and yeah, you know, I think it's that that ability to, um, to find someone's place to cast them right um, yes. and then know how much or how little to do to help. Steve, tell us about the book you've chosen for us. Right. Okay. Um, tonight, Michael, I'll be reading from Fred Kaufman's book, Conscious Business, How to Build Value Through Values. I love that. Now, this is a book I've heard of but not uh, read, and I, I know people who know Fred, although I've never met him either. Uh, how did you um, come across this book? Um. Well, I first met Fred when we worked together at 3 Mobile, when I mentioned before, Greg had yeah. brought him in, we were doing some leadership and culture work there, and uh, we've worked together since, and I've always been an avid follower. He's one of my many leadership and culture crushes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, his work's had a real major impact on me. I talked before around those links between being a better leader, running a great business, and living a great life. Yes. And so... I don't know, over the years it's been, well, firstly, it's been a great source of material for me <laughs> in mm. the work I do. So I've learned and yeah. leveraged a lot. But I don't think career-wise it's really focused me on both the work that I do but also the style or the approach that I take and that I aspire to. Um, that whole period, albeit what, 15 years ago now, is really an inflection point in my career. But when I look back on it, most importantly, I think it's the personal aspect. I think what I learned from, from Fred and many others over that time and since has really kind of helped me know what it means for me to be a better person and to try and be a better person, not just a better performer at work. So, um, yeah, so yeah, that's kind of how I came across him and um, how we've worked since then. And how did you pick the two pages to, to read? Because, you know, with good books, it's often quite hard to kind of narrow it down. Yeah, I mean, I found it hard enough to pick the book, let alone the pages. <laughs> um, in, in the end, I kind of thought what really crystallises the impact and the differentiation mm. that I think this brings. And so I'm actually going to read a brief story that he relays in the book. And uh, it's about a sort of deceptively simple experiment I saw him first do live. Um, but it gets to the, for me at least, the heart of how we how we see the world, how we explain the world, how we show up and that the link then to the outcomes that we get whether that's as an individual as an organization or as a society right. so you know i think it's a really good example of uh, what i call it everyday consciousness you know not mm. big lofty esoteric lives in a mountain kind of consciousness but really right. practical awareness and choice on a daily basis so so yeah so i picked a, a passage that channels that i'm excited to hear it so um 
Steve Morrow from Salesforce reading from Fred Kaufman's book, Conscious Business. Steve, over to you. Thanks. It's tempting to channel my inner Fred, but I'm sure I wouldn't do the Argentinian <laughs> accent uh, or his manner right. justice. Um, but the section title for this is Why Does the Pen Fall? In my seminars, I conduct a simple experiment. I pick up a pen and let it fall to the ground. Then I ask the group, why did the pen fall? Gravity is usually the first answer. Sometimes people point out that I dropped it. Both answers are correct. Both gravity and my releasing of the pen caused it to fall. Most problems have multiple factors as well, but when we analyze them, we don't look at all the causes. Normally, we focus on a single reason and look for a simple explanation. The question is though, what explanation is most useful? And in order to assess usefulness, we need to examine our goals. What are we trying to accomplish through the explanation? If we want to prevent the pen from falling again, then pointing out that the pen falls because of gravity won't help. As long as there's gravity, the pen will fall. And according to that explanation, there's nothing you can do about it. On the other hand, if we want to argue that the falling of the pen isn't my fault, then gravity is the perfect explanation. If you say you drop the pen, however, there is something you can do about it. Now you have a role in the drama and you can pursue your goal actively. If you don't want the pen to fall, hold on to it. <laughs> the gravity explanation places the cause on the uncontrollable. The I dropped it explanation puts me in control. Of course, most situations are complex, but the example demonstrates an important distinction between self-disempowering explanations and self-empowering ones. It distinguishes between the explanation styles of what Fred calls the victim and the player. Steve, great story. And I can just imagine that being demonstrated in front of a room, so it kind of really brings it to life. What's at the heart of this for you? Well, there's lots of things. I mean, firstly, how we see and explain the world is a pretty central part to how we experience life, right? So right, right. These, these patterns might present at work, but they're really how we live and we just bring those patterns to work. So, you know, one of life's great challenges is living up to ourselves. Mm. You know, uh, what is it? Our greatest fear is not that we're powerless, it's that we're so powerful. Right, right. And there's so much kind of blame, denial, justification, avoidance in our lives and in our offices or workplaces or whatever. And it's really just like the fear showing up and our protective or defensive instincts taking over. And I don't know, when I think about this story, this passage, this idea, well, first, it's a great story. Um, yeah. And so the power of story stands out to me, you know, lessons in our everyday experience. Um, but then there's that knowing doing gap the story reflects that kind of uncomfortable incongruence between what we know intellectually and how we actually show up in the world or explain things really practically mm -hmm. um but i don't know i mean the main thing overarching it is just the deceptive simplicity of it it takes really powerful concepts like subjective experience uh neuro-linguistic patterns consciousness defensive behaviors <laughs> workplace dysfunction human dysfunction everything but wraps it up in this really accessible form and yeah. so it's probably an ironically long answer but but it's making the <laughs> making the complex simple is what really stands out for me 
in in that passage. Steve, you had a, a great phrase. You said, you know, really our great challenge in life and in the life we have at work is living up to ourselves and talked about fear as being one of the ways that we get distracted from that. Uh, I'm wondering how you face fear. <laughs> the first couple of things that come to mind is a lot and not as well as I'd like to. Um, but, <laughs> but I think that's the human condition, right? That's right. that's part of it is that we all have these fears about ourselves. And, you know, I, mm. I think the other person who comes to mind on a lot of this is a lot of Brene Brown's work around are we enough? Yes. Are we good enough? If we are ourselves, what will happen? You know, how mm. terrible will things be if we just be the way we are? Um so I think they're the kind of things that um, that for me is the sort of fear I'm talking about that pops up. Some of it's conscious, some of it's unconscious. Yeah. But it's like those patterns of behaviour that tend to protect ourselves more than give. That's the the pattern that I see both in myself and in organisations every day. Like that's that's the drama that plays out in organisations. There is yes. a there's an outer game of whatever business a business is in. Um, but the real game is a whole bunch of people trying to show up in life and work as best they can. And, you know, another thing Fred talks about is behaviours at work are two things. One, yes, they're trying, you know, an attempt to achieve a goal, but they're also a demonstration of something. They're a demonstration of your values. They're a demonstration mm. of who you are. And sometimes that's the fear. It's like, what should I do here? The thing I think I should do out of productivity or the thing I think I should mm. do out of conscience and values. Um, and so, yeah, I think my, my journey in relationship with fear is all around trying to, trying to balance those. And I love quotes. I think of the Mark Twain quote of all the terrible things in my life. Some of them happen. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Most of them happened in my head. Um, yeah. And the amount of energy that I put into that, that, that others put into that, astronomic it's like a whole nother job that everyone's got is managing <laughs> right. the mental traffic so that you can just get out of your way so um yeah so yeah i'm not sure if that answers the question but it's some of my it's uh, a it's an impossible question i think so so i appreciate the uh, all you said to it um i mean really and i think your point is spot on which is you know some of the work we do in in the world of organizational development and culture and HR and learning and development, all that kind of that part of an organization is trying to bring out the best in people, which therefore means trying to help individuals and the organization as a whole think about and manage fear so that they're less reactive to that and more at choice as to how we choose to show up because we, we would like to choose to show up in accordance with the values and the culture that we have. I'm curious to know how at Salesforce you, you scale that work because quite frankly, it's hard enough doing it with yourself, <laughs> trying to, trying to make a, an organization courageous and less reactive to fear is another level of complexity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also, I'm, I think I'm learning it's as much about undoing things mm. for people as it is for doing things for people. <laughs> um, we spend our lives growing and creating and living in personalities and behavioural structures and systems that we think serve us and they serve us really well 
now, but are they serving our long game? And so yeah. I think that really gets to the, the heart of what you're asking is, yeah, it's hard enough to manage it for yourself, let alone help another person, let alone change a system. And I think that's where, you know, leadership drives culture, drives performance. And those links between leadership and culture are something that just fascinate me. You know, mm. everyone talks about culture, but being able to manage it with the level of kind of rigor and discipline that you might manage the other components of a business, whether it's your finances or your brand or your IT systems or whatever. I think that's where um, it becomes a culture management issue Right. As much as, if not more than a personal development or personal change issue, because, right. you know, leadership's countercultural, right? Otherwise it's fitting in, but the... <laughs> oh, I love that. I've, the, never, I've never heard it said like that before, but that's great. Leadership is countercultural. Yeah. Otherwise everybody would just, just, everybody would just do what they would be doing. So I Yeah, that. I, mean, I think perfect. that's what yeah. defines the leader, right? Is countercultural, but countercultural in a really positive way because mm. they're leading there. Mm. Anyway, so, or as we say at Salesforce, trailblazing. Um, right. So, yeah, so I think how you do that in organisations is you've got to work equally hard on the individuals and the system. Right. And a lot of what I've learned from that, I leverage from, you know, Carolyn Taylor and her walking the talk methodology mm -hmm. around making culture doable. It's around right. what are the behaviours, what are the systems, what are the symbols, Um what are the levers that you can adjust? And then how do you put together a program of work <laughs> that creates the conditions so that the individual changes can happen? Because there's, there's lots of skills, resources, ability and focus on making the individual changes, but it's that connection with the system and creating the conditions so that the changes catch um, and grow and get repeated and shared that's mm -hmm. that's i think how you how you scale it and how to do that successfully you know at scale across thousands of geographies tens of thousands of people um i'd love to have a set clear simple answer for it but i think <laughs> it's a consciousness around the individual and the organizational components and everywhere I go, I just see leadership drives culture, drives performance. I joke sometimes it's like the sixth sense. You know, he sees dead people. I see <laughs> leadership drives culture, drives performance. I see superplexes. Right. I see behavioural patterns linking to cultural mm -hmm. norms and repeating patterns in organisations that are either effective or ineffective, which yeah. tends to determine both the how positive the experience is to be a part of it and also how yeah. productive it is and how effective it is in achieving goals, whether it's individual or organisational. Mm. So, again, not sure if that answered your impossibly large well, question, I, but <laughs> hopefully it took well, a step. I guess I'm curious to ask this, and, and maybe a limit on what you can say here, Steve, but is there a story you can tell us about something that you've tried at Salesforce that's had um, some scale and had some success? And... I'd love to hear what the story is, and then I'd love to hear your hypothesis around why that one worked, where others may have worked less well. The story that's coming to mind is is less one that was specifically me, but definitely part of like the work I'm involved in, which was yeah, really trying to heighten people's awareness to looking at how they were behaving not just being 
in it, so to speak. So looking mm -hmm. at the business, not just being in the business. And we did this through with some of our most senior leaders, a lot of time reflecting, facilitating uncomfortable conversations mm -hmm. um, and kind of roughing it up a little bit, you know, busting some myths around the coping strategies that everyone puts in around, we're crushing this, we're winning this and, and heightening people's awareness to the price they're paying. Um, right. In anything from their effectiveness and energy levels through to in the more sort of acute versions of that where people do burn out and have life challenges where the balance between what they give to work and what they give to their family for example isn't um the balance they'd like so mm. the work that we do around that is really connecting back to personal values um and simple things like getting people to sit and reflect and be able to name their values and then to the systems part of it create ways for them to bring that from the offline experience of you know in some workshop in a nice retreat kind of setting <laughs> back to every day right. at work how does that become you know a slide in your slide pack an agenda point in your meeting really practically how do you literally bring values into the conversation at work mm -hmm. and values have always been a part of the conversation at salesforce but more at a company level very clear on what the values right. are incredible work at um promoting engaging aligning around that but um you know all the research around values shows that it's actually clarity of individual values that has the biggest impact on performance and engagement and productivity not so much the clarity on organizational right. values because if you're clear on your own you kind of know if you're aligned and confident in the place you're in so um so yeah the work was really around that and then to scale it it was like, okay, well, we need to create a way then for people who have had this experience to create that experience for their teams. So we need like a team kit. <laughs> how do you then take this to your team and have a conversation, share your values, you know, introduce some of that honesty, um, which becomes vulnerable, but that that's not the point of it. That's just right. the method, not the end. Um, so they talk to their personal values, how that shows up at work. And the thing that always surprises and delights me is when people do that how you see people around just nodding and you can just <laughs> you can almost hear that penny dropping of going right oh of course you do it like that then <laughs> oh you just explain everything yeah, yeah maybe, maybe you weren't you know targeting me unfairly on such and such maybe it's because right. whatever that life experience played into something that's a core value for you mm. so that's the way you roll Oh, of course. And then there's that sense, particularly when really senior leaders in organisations do it, where people go, oh, wow, you too? I thought you were <laughs> right. fixed. I thought you must have been fixed and then that's how you got promoted. Right. <laughs> and it's like, no, these are the challenges we all have. And it's about managing them well on an ongoing basis, not not resolving them, curing them and stamping them out. So, um, so yeah, so then, then you know, the, the process of those team kits develop an app with card activities where people can sort and yeah. create that conversation, create momentum around it so that nice. you not only do the individual change piece of the, the sort of crucible moment and the reflection that people need to identify their own, but then support them in the transfer and the change making piece of making it part of the organizational conversation, not yes. just the individual development one. How do you navigate the tension between corporate values and individual values 
because you know they're both important and they're not always going to be in full alignment how do you, how do you help people kind of step through that um so the first thing that comes to mind is actually a conversation I was having with Soph, my wife, around organisational values and some of the provocative language we had was values are supposed to be discriminatory. That's the mm-hmm. idea so that people choose in and choose out <laughs> and they're right. both very important parts of that value. So, so I think a lot of it, as you said, is about alignment rather than tension. Um mm-hmm. I mean, there's tension within my personal values, right? <laughs> I've got yeah. value one, value two, value three. Sometimes I want to do this out of service, but that out of connection. Um, yeah. I can be in a conversation and I'm, you know, moment to moment making choices around what do I over-index on here? Is it honour the relationship, maintain the connection? How do I do that and honour the service of helping people mm-hmm. sort of eat the developmental vegetables, not the developmental chocolate cake, right, <laughs> which is generally not as uh, not as easy or pleasant. Yeah. So I think that tension exists within our own values because it's a hierarchy. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so I think it's the same with the individual or similar with the individual organisational things where... Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a perfect match. Um, right. I sometimes joke, Ohan, we talk about Ohana as a, like a feeling of family and an inclusive culture. And I joke, it's Ohana, not Nirvana. Like it's not right. about being perfect. It's not about having a 100% match. If you can achieve that, fantastic. Um, yeah. My best career experiences have been when there's like a really high percentage of match um, right. between my own values, the organisational values, and between my kind of values, the way I think of them and the way I behave and the yeah. organization's values, the way they describe them and the way the organization actually rolls. So right. a lot of the time, the disconnect isn't between values and values on a page. It's between personal espoused right. values right. and organizational lived values. Um, yes. That's a really big gap a lot of the time. That's a, that's Walking a, the talk, right? Yeah, well, that's a very, it's a nice, subtle, it's, it's, it's obvious as soon as you say it, but, you know, I think um, the walk the talk work possibly has its roots in the edge shine work, which is, you know, these different levels of culture, the artifacts, the espoused values, and then the lived values, the assumptions. Yeah. And, um, you know, when all three of those are aligned, you have a strong culture, but often there's this gap between here's what I say is important and here's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, they're, and they're different. Yeah. Steve, what's um, what have you left behind in terms of beliefs about leadership? Well, you know, what are what are kind of old stories or myths that you're like, you know, what? It's just <laughs> I believed it for a while. I just don't believe it now. I had it when this happened. The first thing that came up was actually about me, not about leadership. <laughs> um, what have I left behind in my leadership? I, I can still remember the room I was sitting in doing my, you know, 360 debrief. Mm. And like the answer to your question is probably ironically high standards is what I've left mm. behind. Because um, the way I was doing high standards worked for me for a while, but then it wasn't really working for me. <laughs> and what, this coach said to me in this um, this moment was make sure your your high standards are serving you, not ruling you. Mm. And I was like, you know, twenty years later, still trying to get that. <laughs> um, 
and you know i'd always as a, a leader and a performer and a everything i'd be like pride myself on these high standards and yeah and over time i think that's softened is probably the right word mm -hmm. um you know i know when i'm not at my best it can err towards being um more rigid and dogmatic than i'd like because right. it's about those standards like i can feel <laughs> my body tensing up i can feel the gestures changing i can feel the breathing yeah. stopping all that kind of thing so i think it's that clinging to high standards which when i think about it from a self-awareness point of view i know is the competitive drive underneath it's let yeah. me show you how good i am through my work yeah, um, yeah. and the reason that i probably need to do that <laughs> is because not confident of it if I can't show it through my work. So that's that kind of competitive instinct to to show how good I am through the work through these high standards. Because if my standards are that high, I must be okay. And that's the yeah. approval part that comes in as well. So I think that's what I've I've am trying to leave behind. Um, mm -hmm. And then from a leadership point of view, I think everyone's got their version of that. You know, yeah. for some people that pattern will resonate for some people that will be alien. Um, mm -hmm. and they'll describe exactly the opposite. They'll be <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So that's great. Yeah. I love your little aside you had where you're like, you know, where, if I'm a bit run down, I'll slip back into having high standards as a kind of a whip hand over myself. Yeah. Um, and I have something similar. It's, it's an, it's a, I get it kind of entangled in worrying about details if I'm run down. Yeah. And in fact, these days I use it, I kind of flip it, which is like, if I find myself <laughs> gnawing <laughs> over the details, I'm like, oh, this tells me I'm a bit run down at the moment. I'm under, undernourished, under-resourced, yeah, yeah. underslept, whatever it might be. <laughs> I need to go off and have a nap <laughs> and, and just, and have, and have some, have some lunch or something to, to kind of get back to myself Yeah. because my behavior is a clue to my actual kind of internal state well you're uh you're, you're a step ahead of me in self-monitoring it we also actually connected <laughs> to that value story i shared the other thing that yeah we do at salesforce is operating manuals like mm. you buy a fridge or a computer they're quite technical they come with instructions yeah. humans so much more technical don't come with instructions <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's more a miracle that sometimes it works not that a lot of the time it doesn't mm -hmm. work so um we have operating manuals which we create which are descriptions of our own patterns and what i'm mm. like at my best what i'm like under pressure and importantly what i need under pressure what i don't right. need under pressure how to help me drag out of that and one of my mm. patterns is the same right it's going from big picture, expressive kind of thinking to like terminal critical detail. Um, right. And so through the operating manuals, like I've got great stories in this job and in previous ones where if I can express that right in engaging my team in the conversation through our kind of team formation, um, they're actually that mirror. <laughs> and right. the good thing about that is that they usually catch it before I do. Sometimes I get it, but they'll go, wow. I asked for a bit of feedback and this is what I got. What's happening for you on that, Steve? Like, uh, you feeling confident on that one? And I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, maybe you don't need, you know, 76 pages of written feedback on it. Maybe that's right. me. That's, that's my stuff, not your need. Yes, uh, feedback. So often it tells you about the other person. It doesn't tell you the whole lot about you at all. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
it's like you know they say feedback's a gift it's <laughs> right when people buy gifts they want not gifts the person <laughs> they're giving them to Hang want on. right <laughs> yeah. that's great steve this has been such a rich conversation um and you know i could sit with you for hours actually chatting through this stuff because you're graceful and eloquent and and geeky about it all and in just the right way it's fantastic um Look, I've got a final question I like to to finish conversations with, and it's this: what what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Um, oh, look, so much we could say, right? I'm <laughs> su super conscious of being concise after I talked about making the complex simple, but um, <laughs> I do think about you know when, when we started, and you asked which book it was. I did yeah. find it quite hard to pick one and pick two pages because there's there's so much and. When I was reflecting on it, you know, I made what was supposed to be a short list and ended up a long list of what we might cover oh, right. today. Yeah. And when I look back on it, that red thread is really the thing. You know, I think about, we talk about Fred does it with consciousness and values and, oh, my God, his work on emotional mastery, that kind of thing. You're, uh, I hate to say it, Michael, but your work, one of the things I've really Thank enjoyed you. in your work is coaching habit, advice monster, yeah. the five questions, even the conversations we've had around immunity to change. Yeah. When I think about the the two pages or the books or the authors or the work that's had an impact on me, I think that's the red thread. You know, it's it's making those really profound and complex ideas and concepts really practical and accessible. Um, mm. And I've got like this list, you know, we've mentioned a, a few, Brandon Brown, I was thinking of doing, there's a, a Jervis Bush has this book called Clear Leadership, which you and I have spoken about before. Yep. He talks about the experience cube. And I'm like, oh, my God, how much better would the world be if everyone knew that? Like, it's so cool. Yep. And when we last worked together, we had the, the Vega Factor crew and Total Motivation or Tomo. And then there's just so much, you know, I think yeah. mind traps and mindfulness and recently discovering the cartoon version of it that Liz Foslian does on uh, LinkedIn. So if oh, you haven't seen that, check it out. There's just so much of it. But... But for me, it's that it's kind of that ability. It crystallised that the value is the ability to capture those profound concepts in accessible formats. And right. yeah, I think that's probably what's influenced how I do what I do. It's influenced what I do, and hopefully, you know, how I live as well. So, um, so I don't know where that needed to be said, but I said it. The thing that does need to be said at the end of it is really um, thank you. I mean, it's been a fun conversation but i'm really complimented you asked i hope it's been of interest and value for you or the listeners clearly yes. I'm, a, I'm a junkie for this right so uh, <laughs> you are i'm looking like... forward to making some new connections via linkedin or however or whatever and just really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about it so that's probably what needs to be said is thank you michael So I've got two questions that I'm sitting with from this lovely conversation with Steve. You can tell how much I enjoy his company. The first one is about standards. You know, Steve brought this up and I'm sitting here going, so what are my standards? And in what ways do they pull me forward and lift me up and elevate me? And how might they actually be being used as a form of punishment, a way of diminishing who I am or kind of subtly undermining who I am? rather than the sense of nurture that I think you want from standards. And second, and obviously connected to the first question, whose approval am I still seeking? You know, what am I seeking to prove? And I like how approval and prove are the same word almost. 
That second question is the harder one for me. There's nobody that comes to mind. I don't think of somebody, oh, I'm trying to, you know, show my dad that I'm still a good person or anything like that. But I do feel that there's a sense of wanting to prove myself. So interesting to sit with that and go, well, what, what, what's that about? And what's that forcing me to do or not forcing me to do? And is that what I want? How about you? Who are you seeking to prove yourself to? If you like the conversation with Steve, I hope you did. I've got two other ones that I might suggest for you. Martin Reeves, who works for the consultancy BCG and author of a number of books. His conversation with me is called How to Keep Curiosity Alive. Um, he just wrote a book about that. He's a very smart man, very interesting. And then actually the interview that is uh, follows that in the series, Julie Lithcott Haynes. Her interview is called How to Resist Conformity. And um, also just a fascinating, wonderful conversation. So I think those are two conversations that will nicely supplement this chat uh, Steve and I had. Thank you for listening. The podcast grows by attracting the perfect audience, by being people's favorite podcast. That's my goal. I want to be a few people's favorite podcast or one of their top seven because rumor has it that people can pretty much manage only seven podcasts on their list, really be really committed to them. If you think there's somebody in your life who this podcast might be one of their favorite seven, I'd love you to pass the word along. That means a lot. As does writing a review on whatever the podcast platform is that you listen to. Some stars, some nice words, all of that cheers the soul and helps the podcast be found by other people. Thank you so much. You're awesome. You're doing great.